Good morning. I just want to thank each and every one of you once again for allowing my family and I to quarantine over these two weeks uh, so that we can go visit Kim's mom. Uh, I appreciate it. Kim really appreciates it. And uh, we look forward to worshiping with each and every one of you once again once this is all over. Uh, with that being said, let's jump into our second scripture reading. Uh, we are in the book of Joel. We're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1414, 1414. Give you a minute to turn there. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountains, like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it tremble at the day of the Lord. Who is to blame? Who is at fault? Who is responsible for this COVID-19 pandemic? Is it Trump? Is it China? Is it the media? Can the guilt be placed on the, on the World Health Organization or the CDC? Or should we ascribe it to some bat over in Wuhan? Where does the blame lie? Today there are many people pointing many fingers at one another. Just turn on your television and you will get countless opinions. 
Just go on social media and you will find plenty of blame being passed around. You see, when, when devastation happens, we like to have a scapegoat, a, a patsy, if you will. We, we want to know who caused our hurt. And the reason we want to know is because we want justice. But when hurt is caused by some natural event, it's hard to, pl- it's hard to pin the blame on anyone. Because the reality of the situation is that no mere human has the capability to control such things. Not even the president wields such power. And yet there is one, one who has such an ability. One that we as Christians try, try hard not to think about. And the reason we avoid this train of thought is because it, it messes with our, our ideal notion of who this person is. I'm speaking of God, of course. Our good and kind and loving God who only wants to bless us and never wants to see us come to harm. After all, we have a a, a God of light, not of darkness. Am I right? And yet, we, we, we claim that this God of ours is also sovereign. That he has control over all things including nature. That the sun doesn't shine and the rain doesn't fall without his say. And that even a virus cannot rear its ugly head without the command of the Lord. Oops. Did I really just say that? You see, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a God who is, who is all-powerful but then never brings about disaster. It just doesn't work. For if you say things like like tornadoes and tsunamis are not under his control, then you have to concede that there are forces in this universe that can rival God's strength. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And it is not what we find in the book of Joel. Last Sunday, we we began this journey by listening to Joel's warning about a a plague of locusts. The land would be swallowed up by this infestation, not leaving anyone who wouldn't feel their biting sting. And the charge that Joel had laid forth was to mourn. The people were to wail. They were to cry out to God because of, of the devastation that would be all around them. For the day of the Lord was near, and it would be a day of destruction and ruin. And now today, the prophet is bringing another message. Another message to his audience as he gives further description of this impending doom. And the command is no longer to mourn, but to tremble in fear. For the situation is much more dire than they think. Let's look at Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. 
At the very start, we see this call to, to blow the trumpet and to sound the alarm. In other words, warn the people, warn them to take refuge for an invading army fast approaches. Think of those air raid sirens during the Great Wars. These trumpet blasts are a signal for these people. A signal saying, run for your lives. And it is a fitting alarm. It's fitting that it is sounded from Zion, God's holy hill. That it is from the Temple Mount, God's dwelling place, that these people must be warned. For this alert comes from God himself. He is the one who is warning his people of this dark and dreaded day. And he, he gives this warning because he is looking for a response. He is wanting his people to, to react to the news that they hear. Let all who live in the land tremble. Let them quiver. Let them quake. Let the fear of this invading army overtake them. But why should they be afraid? Why shouldn't they be bold like, like Joshua and prepare for battle? Because the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. You see, this, this isn't some battle that they can just win. No. For this army that is being sent, it is sent by God himself. And there is no stopping it. It is a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds, a day of blackness. It is a reversal of that creation command, let there be light. For the words coming from the mouth of Yahweh, as he pulls his blessings away, are let there be darkness. Often we think of darkness... When we think of darkness, we think of the presence of evil. I mean, this is a theme in all of our movies, is it not? The enemy invades at night, and all seems hopeless. But then the dawn comes, and with it, a hero to rescue us. Think of, of Gandalf, draped in his shining robe and seated on his white steed, leading the charge as rays of light rise over the hill. Or think of Superman, that, that invincible hero who gains his power from the sun. In other words, light is good, darkness is bad. It's pretty simple. But here in Joel, we see the opposite. For God, this, this one who defines goodness for us, is bringing about a day of darkness. Yahweh. Our ultimate hero is causing the night. Here's what you need to understand. Darkness does not have some independent existence that is apart from God. No. Just as God causes the day, so too he causes the night. He is at the head of the storm. And he is the maker of the void. And on the black day of his judgment... He carries forth his good purpose in the darkness. Look at Psalm 97, verses 2 through 5. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. 
righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like, melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. This God who, who veils himself in the clouds is frightful to behold. And yet out of the darkness comes forth his good purposes, which are his righteous judgments. And the judgment upon the people of Joel's day would be this army of locusts. But you may be asking yourself, what good could come of this? How could a famine throughout the land be beneficial? Or for that matter, how could a deadly pandemic bring about God's purposes? Before we answer that question, Joel wants to first describe this coming army. He wants to show how, how terrifying they truly will be. And he does so in, in three ways. First, he describes the devastation that these forces will bring. Second, he shows the fear that, that men will have as this swarm approaches. And finally, he, he demonstrates how effective these locusts will be against their man-made defenses once they enter the land. Let's look at these next verses and just to see how to see just how frightening this army will truly be. Like the dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Here we see a, a powerful army, countless in numbers. They are unlike anything that these people have encountered before. And their destructive force is overwhelming. The fire that they bring demonstrates their consuming nature. Everything they touch might as well be ashes. They take a lush land, a land that, that, that is like the green garden of Eden, and turn it into a desert waste. All is burned. Nothing is left behind. Their destruction is total. It is complete. But they do more than just destroy, for they, for they strike fear into the hearts of men as they approach. Look at verses 4 through 6. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Like a crackling fire consuming stubble. Like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. The sight and the sound of this approaching army will overwhelm the senses. These locusts are compared to fierce war horses, enraged beasts intent on trampling any and all that get in their way. They move swiftly, not, not even allowing the mountainous terrain to slow them down. 
Indeed, they are frightful to behold. And the sound that they create can be heard from miles around, as if a stampede were approaching, as if the roar of a forest fire was heading their way, as if thousands upon thousands of soldiers were sending forth their battle cries. The clamor from their beating wings will fill the ears of the people, causing the hearts of men to pound within them. The sight and the sound of these locusts will cause so much terror that men will writhe in pain. They will cause such dread that people's blood will run cold. But Joel continues in verses 7 through 9 as he shows us how well organized this army will be and how little the fortifications of men will stand. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. These locusts are orderly and efficient. Though they are millions, if not billions, they work as one. The fact that these locusts don't don't jostle each other demonstrates that they are trained soldiers, soldiers working as a unit, able to accomplish their goal. And the defenses of Jerusalem will not help. They are insufficient, as this army can easily scale the city walls. It's as if if it was like Jericho all over again, a city whose walls fell, giving no defense. And like a thief in the night, they have the the ability to break in and to take what they want. In other words, there is no stopping them. And yet as frightful as this description is, what comes next next will send shivers down a person's spine. Look at our last two verses. Look at verses 10 and 11. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it. It is not only the people who will quake in fear, but the whole cosmos. Just as the people were commanded to tremble, so now the ground is convulsing as in the sky rumbles. The sun and the moon and even the stars in the sky no longer give off their light. It truly is a day of darkness, a day of gloom. But what could cause even the elements to be afraid? What could cause the earth to shake and the sky to tremble in fear? What could cause the heavenly bodies to run away and hide? It is this Lord who thunders at the head of his army. 
we have now reached the climax of this passage. For it is here that the, that the general of these forces is finally revealed. And he is none other than Yahweh himself. He is the one who gives the commands. He is the one who directs his troops, ensuring their success. You see, the day of the Lord, this dark, dark day, is also the day of God's visitation. And we should have guessed this from the get-go. With the sounding of the trumpets and the gathering of the clouds creating this gloom, it is quite reminiscent of what we read earlier from the book of Exodus. Look at Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. The prophet Joel was correct when he said these words, The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Sometimes the God we want is not the God who is. And that is no fault on God's part. But the blame lies in our own sinful desires. We don't want the God who thunders. We don't like the God who comes riding in on a darkened cloud. We cringe at the God who commands the locusts. And we sneer at the God who sends forth his virus as a judgment. How often do we try to explain away much of the devastation within our midst? We talk about natural disasters such as earthquakes and, and hurricanes as though God doesn't have his hand in these things. As Christians, we have lost sight of God's providence. Let me ask you, do you see 2020 as a day of the Lord? Do you see it as his judgment upon us? Do you see his, his fingerprint in this virus that has caused us so much pain? And so much fear. God is the author of these things. And yet he is good and just to bring them about. For he has a purpose in them. What could that purpose be? Look at Exodus 20 verses 18 through 20. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. To be in the presence of the Lord 
is a frightful thing, but it is a good thing. For it is the fear of God that can turn a heart, causing it to repent. You see, when we only view God in light of his blessings, we, we, tend to, we tend to let the blessings become the center of our attention and not the one who gave those blessings. But when darkness and pain enter into the picture, then we are driven to the only place we can go in order to survive. We are driven to our God, to the Holy One, to the only one who can grant us mercy. Our eyes are forced to look upon him because there is no one else to whom we can turn. Dear friends, the reason we suffer is because God has, has put that suffering into our lives in order to draw us to him. For there is another day coming, another day of the Lord, a day that will far exceed any that we have seen before. And unless we turn to him, turn to him today, then there will be no more time for him to grant us his mercy. No more time to receive his grace. This darkness that you are facing today, this, this nasty virus has turned your world upside down. And yet, it is a light. It is a light and it is a beacon. A beacon that is pointing you to the only one who can rescue you. God is calling on you to return to him. He is calling for repentance. But we will talk more about that next time. For now, let us, let us take in this, this day of the Lord and all of his terrible, terrible sights and sounds. And let us allow the fear of God to settle within. After last week's sermon, my wife told me that, that she wanted a little more hope at the end. And after reading to her the, the verses for this week, she said the same thing. And I get it. I, I too want that light at the end of the tunnel. But thus far, it seems that, that all that Joel is giving to us is doom and gloom. Yet when you look at the state of our world, perhaps, perhaps that is the message that God wants, wants us to reflect upon right now. Sometimes his word of mercy doesn't come right away. Perhaps God wants, wants us to sit in our troubles and reflect. Reflect upon why this is happening and what it all means. Last week, we mourned. This week, we must be driven to the fear of the Lord. Let us not rush this, this process of God, but let us take it fully in so that we can learn the lesson well. For the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Let us pray. Father, 
we confess that we have a faulty picture in our minds about who you are. We shape you in, into a mold that, that fits our own sense of justice and not your own. Help us to repent. Repent of our idolatry. And help us to, to gain a, a fear of you, of who you truly are. We need your Holy Spirit in order to do this. And we pray too that you would use that fear, that fear of you, to bring about repentance. That we would look to your Son as our only source of mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.